0: Good physics day, everyone. Back in August 2020, a series of events conspired and led me to the idea for this podcast. Once I came upon the idea that this show could and should have interviews, who was the first guest that came to my mind? Well, he's the one you'll be hearing today, the esteemed Joe Reddish. How could he not be at the top of my list? My enthusiasm for the introductory physics for life science community drove my early plans, and I originally intended that the podcast would focus exclusively on this topic. Joe was at the forefront of the IPLS movement. He laid the groundwork that we are working from. But then I brought in the podcast theme to envelop physics education research as a whole, with IPLS as a favorite subtopic. In the world of PER, Joe, again, is a top choice. His decades of work on cognition and epistemology in physics is foundational, and he worked side by side with many of the great PER gurus. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, authors, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I'm so excited to share my conversation with Professor Emeritus Joe Reddish. If you want to learn more about Joe, see a recap of our conversation, and access links to the many articles and resources mentioned in the episode, head on over to physicsalive.com forward slash Joe to check out the show notes. That's physicsalive.com forward slash Joe. While you are there, please subscribe to the Physics Alive newsletter so that you can stay up to date about current episodes and future projects. If you're on social media, you can check out Physics Alive on Twitter and go to Facebook.com forward slash Physics page. If you like this and other episodes, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star rating and review. This will make it easier for other educators to find the show. I usually say all of that at the end of the show, but today I want Joe to have the last word. Only months into his retirement, he has just completed a 50-year career as a physics professor at the University of Maryland. Here's a brief summary of his accomplishments from the UMD webpage. Since 1985, although we'll learn it goes back a little earlier than that, he has been actively involved in the subject of physics education. His work in physics education has contributed to the use of computers in physics education, cognitive modeling of student thinking in physics, and the role of student expectations and epistemologies and their learning of physics. Recently his work has focused on the development of a new introductory physics course for life science students. Professor Reddish has received awards for his work in education from the Washington Academy of Science, the Maryland Association for Higher Education, Dickinson College, Vanderbilt University, and the Robert A. Milliken Medal from the American Association of Physics Teachers. In 2005, he received the NSF Director's Award as a Distinguished Teaching Scholar. In the summer of 2012, Joe received the Medal of the International Commission of Physics Education at the World Physics Conference in Istanbul and was awarded the AAPT's Ersted Medal at their national meeting in January 2013. In April 2015, he received the American Physical Society's Excellence in Physics Education Award. But I'm pretty sure Joe wouldn't want us clamoring on about awards and whatnot. So let's put aside the accolades and years of experience. I want you to just listen to Joe, the man, the researcher, the educator. He has so much passion and enthusiasm in his voice. After a long and productive career, He still speaks of the exciting things he is learning with a glisten in his eye and wonder in his words. He loves thinking about education. He loves what he does. He is bubbling with eager authenticity. And really, I'm just tickled pink to be talking to him. So much so that I even forgot to check if I was using my proper microphone. I wasn't. Oh well. Joe was a storyteller extraordinaire, and he has so much to share. This episode is longer than I originally intended, but Joe's wisdom and life energy is a treat for us. Sit back and get ready to learn about some of the history of PER and dig into how students learn. Today, I am so pleased to speak with Edward Frederick Reddish. Why are you called Joe?
1: Oh, that's very simple. I've developed this answer over many years. It, It comes from my middle name. Frederick? Well, I couldn't come from Edward. That doesn't make any sense. It comes
0: from Frederick, though? <laughs> Sorry, that's the best I got. That's the best you got. Okay. We are no longer, we are we are not illuminated any further. Sorry, folks. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, again, I'm, I'm so pleased to speak with you. Uh, I've been so inspired by so much of your work over the years. And I'm realizing, uh, as, as I've looked into this, this interview today, how many papers you have and how little time I have to read all of them. But I am looking forward to, to talking today. So I want to try and follow the arc of your career a little bit, I'm particularly excited about your work in teaching physics to the life science majors. The Nexus, Nexus project is one of the foremost and largest scale endeavors in the country with that. But I know that the emergence of this project is invariably tied to your other work uh, that you've done leading up to that. So uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go back to earlier in your career. Uh, I won't to mention too many dates, uh, you were a, a nuclear theorist, uh, but in the early eighties, you recognized the magical new device coming onto the scene, the computer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so your earliest education related work seems to be incorporating, uh, the computer into physics education uh, from a current day perspective. It is hard to imagine physics labs without computer software to process data. It, it's a given to connect to Pasco or Vernier to use Excel or Logger Pro or Desmos for graphical analysis. What was the landscape in the eighties? Take take us back to those days. What were you doing that was different than other physics educators?
1: That actually grows out of earlier times even before uh, I was bringing in the computer. You know, when I I was made an assistant professor in in, uh, after two years of postdoc, I was given very clear instructions from my research group. They said, Don't pay much attention to your teaching. It doesn't count for anything. Just do the research and get by. Be good enough. Actually, explicitly said. And I said, thank you very much for that information. And I proceeded to totally ignore it, completely reinventing the two introductory physics courses for physics majors that I was then teaching. Which is another interesting story. And there are some, I did some really fun things there that uh, um, are still interesting, I think. But the main thing is, I believed in project work. And I had small classes. So I started asking the kids to do substantial projects. And basically, that would be worth like 20% of their grade over a whole semester they had to do some calculations. And of course, they were doing them by hand at the time. This was 1971, right? They were doing them by hand. Um, but whenever I had majors, I was always wanting to get them to do project work. And of course, I was a theorist, and so they were tr- trying to do analytic problems, which were probably too hard for most of the students. <laughs> but some of them really liked it, and there were some super projects. Um But then... In 1980, I was uh, teaching graduate quantum, and I was a nuclear theorist, and I'd been a nuclear theorist for 15 years. And I said, you know, look, professional physicists don't do only analytics. You've got to do computations. So I said, let's see if I can put some computing into the class. And I had 33 students, and I said, how many of you can program something? And 32 of them said they can do Fortran. I said, okay, one student, we're going to ask you to learn a little. And we had to do job, they had to learn job control language, they had to go to the mainframes, they had to find terminals on campus. And it was kind of a disaster. (laughs) You know, I had them inverting a few matrices and things, But it was not fun, and they didn't like it. And I said, okay, that didn't work. December 81, the PC came out. Uh. And I bought my first one, and I said, this changes everything. And I started thinking about it. I started looking at it. And a whole bunch of things started to then fall into place. Um, 1982, they asked me to become chairman of the department. I said... No, uh, I'm too young. I'm only 40. I'm in the in the middle of my research career. Come back later. They said I wrote such a good letter <laughs> say d- turning them down that they wanted me to reconsider. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought about it, and I said, you know, I might be able to do something with the computer if I was chair. So I agreed to be chair, the next thing that happened was the AAP decided it wanted to move. They were in Stony Brook. I started, my colleague John Lehman, who was very into AAPT, said, they want to move it down to Raleigh, to North Carolina State, but we ought to bring them here because we're right next to the government and you know we ought to bring them here. So I met Jack Wilson. And Jack Wilson and I, I don't know if you know Jack Wilson, mm-hmm, he no. was the executive officer of AAPT for many years, very creative guy, went on to bigger and better things, wound up being president of the system of the University of Massachusetts. He's now that emeritus. And you know, so he became a big shot. But he was, ve- he was an experimentalist, very interested in using the computer in teaching and had done some at his university before he went to AAPT. He and I hit it off and just started creating ideas, kicking stuff around. We came up with this idea to create an environment in which students, undergraduate students, could learn to program right away. There was no off-the-shelf code for students. There wasn't even a grapher where you could turn the dials. So we said, we're gonna create such an environment in Pascal, which was the language that high schools often used to teach programming. And we're gonna teach the kids a little Pascal, but we're gonna make a shell that allows them to only write the physics. You know what it looks like now? It looks like ghost script or mm-hmm. uh, um, v- visual Python. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bruce Sherwood took this idea uh, that we had had and just made it so much better and improved it and improved it and improved it. But it was really Jack's idea first. and we came up and put a lot of physics into it and made a we made the Maryland University Project in Physics and Educational Technology. which, if you listened carefully, you will' realize that the uh, the uh, acronym is Muppet.
0: And and when I visited uh, UMD a number of years ago, I remember seeing a Jim Henson statue with Kermit. I don't suppose there's uh, you were purposely trying to bring that of in a little bit. Of
1: course, we were. Jim Henson <laughs> was a, a Maryland graduate, and Kermit was born on the University of Maryland campus. So I knew this, and we came up with this acronym.
0: If there's one thing physici- physicists can do, it's, it's put, a get, put together a good acronym. <laughs> good
1: acronym. <laughs> what we learned, where well, I. Speaking with somebody on an airplane, I was warned. Disney had bought Hanson Incorporated, and we better watch out for um, uh, uh, suits. And so we started putting periods after each of these. Ah, uh, so yes. Was no, <laughs> no, it was now an abbreviation. Anyway, that was so much fun. And we really were right at the front end of doing stuff. Uh, with computers. And then I got kids to do projects, and they had to do it with a computer. So they Mm, almost all of them did a calculation or an experiment. And those projects were fantastic. That just took off. Um, And we wrote about that in the Muppet paper in the American Journal of Physics, which was the first paper in the American Journal of Physics to include computer code. They Mm. said, we don't put computer code said, it's crucial to show the structure of what the students are doing here. We had some arguments, but we finally uh, convinced them. Anyway, um, the next part of that story is actually important for the later piece because then Windows came out, 1987 or 8, and Jack said, now we can put up all kinds of things at once and i said ooh we can modularize the whole course bob fuller also had some ideas on this that we had talked to him about and he and i started to put together a project to take muppet and put it into windows so you had all these pieces we started making these little tools like graphers where you could turn the dials and matching spreadsheets and data collection and priscilla laws at the time was beginning to make the first data collection devices with Ron Thornton and David Sokoloff um, coming out of Bob Tinker's shop uh, and John Lehman was working on that and so we started putting all of these tools together and we made a prototype environment called Couple, the Comprehensive Unified Physics Learning Environment which was modular and we ran into a lot of trouble because we wanted this to be a sharing environment a place where people could exchange stuff we spent a lot of time thinking about how you would share disks and set up drives on your computer to take other people's and how could you address these things. We were trying to invent the, the internet. The internet, oh my god! And we weren't <laughs> smart enough to come up with universal resource locators or we would have invented uh... the internet. But at the time, I then started to go to AAPT and I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't go to AAPT until 1988. Well, Even though you
0: brought it to to Maryland more or less?
1: (laughs) Yeah, right, but I wasn't we brought it to Maryland in in like 83-84 and I was very engaged in in talking to them and so forth as the chair, but I didn't actually start going to meetings Until I said, well, we want to present our computer work and this is the place to present it. I went to the meetings and I was blown away. I started, I listened to Lillian McDermott, to David Hestonies, to um, Dewey Dykstra, to, I mean, there was just Bob Fuller. There was this whole crew of people doing research on student thinking and learning and showing me that some of the niggling problems that I had seen in my teaching and just kind of brushed off were deep and interesting and important. And I kind of said, oh, oh, I have to to look at this. (laughs) And I started looking more and more and I started reading. I had a sabbatical coming up in 92, I said, you know, my nuclear physics getting a little sticky and you know, I've done the same thing for a long time. I need something new. And I was thinking of possibly going into applications of chaos theory in quantum scattering, which is a really fun topic. And, and there would have been some really nice things to do. So I said, but I like this education stuff too. I'm going to go on sabbatical to Lillian McDermott's shop and see what physics education research is like. The same time I was doing reading on, on this chaos theory and the chaos theory was great, but I was just totally taken by the physics education research. I said, I, "I when I was done, I said, okay, I gotta do this. This is what I'm gonna spend the rest of my life. And although the nuclear physics has interesting things, I, I, this is so big. I have got to cut clean and say I'm not going back. I'm not doing any nuclear physics anymore. I'm not going to go to the seminars. I'm not going to take any money. I'm I'm getting off, mm-hmm. and I I did that.
0: And the education world is is so thankful <laughs> that you did. I I was uh, I, I was doing a little digging into your your uh, CV to try to find when your last when your last nuclear physics paper was. Can you? you recall
1: probably was about 1990 or 91 uh, i mean the, the probably the last paper i wrote was a uh, summary paper for a the- for a conference a nuclear conference
0: might have been the the last one i could find and maybe i don't even have a full uh, a full um cd yeah i don't i saw vector content of nn potentials and poly forbidden states in 91 that was the last one. Oh, yeah, trying. right,
1: right, uh, right. I had a, maybe a graduate problems. student. That uh, that was a cool project. Yeah. Anyway, I could tell you about that, but that's another No, no. Story. I, <laughs> I was also
0: looking. One was your first education-related paper, and I, I saw it in 1988, uh, From Here to the Future, the Impact of the Computer on College Physics Teaching. And that, and that seemed to be the jump. And your sabbatical seemed to be the real jump into something new. And that's- Well, actually,
1: I mean, it was really- Uh, 1985 was my previous sabbatical. I went to uh, was getting off my chairmanship. I went to Indiana University uh, Cyclotron because those were my energy ranges that I was interested Mm in, and I was going to write a book on three-body physics. I have 80 percent of a book on three-body physics sitting in a box.
0: If the business is still correct, you know, you're in retirement, you could always pull that one back out. I, I
1: have a million education
0: projects that are <laughs> backed up
1: to do. Stay focused.
0: But, Stay focused. But what,
1: what, happened, what happened was um, I invited one of my former postdocs who had gone on to become a professor at Kent State University uh, to give a seminar in nuclear physics. I picked him up at Indianapolis Airport, drove back 45 minutes, the whole time. I talked to him about education and the computer stuff. And at the end, when I he got out and you know I was putting him into the hotel, he said, you're really excited about this stuff, aren't you? And I stopped and I said, oh, you know, I really am. <laughs> that was kind of a break point for me. Mm-hmm. And in realizing that this was where I really wanted to devote a major effort. This is what I was caring about. Mm-hmm. But my first real research paper in physics education research, I mean, the computer stuff were position papers. Mm-hmm. The first research was it was interesting because it was my, um, the implication of cognitive studies for teaching physics, 1994. American Journal of Physics. This was a theory paper in physics education research about what the psychology was that you needed in order to think about physics teaching. Because at Lillian's shop, what I saw was that she had 25 people. She had three quarters of a million dollars in grants. She was doing amazing stuff with observation and curriculum development. And I said, I can't compete with this but there isn't any theory. Got to be some theory here somewhere. So I started reading the education literature, read Andy DeCessa, I read psychology stuff. Um, my wife knows about this and she helped me. And and I started to say, okay, there is theory here. Uh, and so I, summa- I summarized what I had learned in this paper and my first thought, in fact, the first paragraph in the paper originally was, dear editor, you're never going to publish this. I know that, but I need to write this. So here it is. <laughs> Take it or leave it. <laughs> of course, I took that off before sending it Okay, in. okay. And, <laughs> and it was accepted immediately. It's one of my mm. most cited papers. They still read it. It was uh, it was so amazing. Uh, it was, it was really fun. And from then on, from then on, it was. I mean, it was. I. It was what I had learned that made helped make physics education make sense to me. Here's my summary of it. And Lillian hated it. She didn't. <laughs> she didn't like theory. And so because. You know, there was at the time physics education research was. You know, is this part of physics? This isn't physics, right? And I'm doing psychology, real. You know, really saying you need to know psychology to do this, in the same way as you know being, uh, you know being a high energy experimentalist means you need to know some hardcore engineering details. Is that physics? Yeah. No, I I like to think those are comparable, but the physics departments didn't think that, and Lillian was mm. trying to protect the foothold of PER in the physics departments, and I was trying to say we need to open it to the theoretical side. So for the next what twenty years, we were <laughs> pulling in opposite directions. Lillian and I banging heads, and it was I think extremely productive. <laughs>
0: No, well, and and there was certainly the challenge in the early years, and I suspect that it lingers quite a bit today of physics education research not being seen as equivalent to other modes of research in in the university setting. And I I see more and more of it growing now, but I I have this sense that some of the old stigmas might still remain.
1: This is one of the reasons I have a tendency to write long papers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because sometimes, no, seriously, sometimes... You have to show that there's a profession there, right? That we are a serious research field, and that it's not something that you can just do like that with a flick of your finger, uh, and that anybody can do. It takes work, it takes a knowledge base, and it takes complex reasoning. And that was my goal.
0: I've got a couple of little things that uh, I'm curious to explore myself. So Uh, One of them, you know, kind of in the time frame we're in, in the mid to late 90s, uh, your group developed the MPEX, the Maryland Physics Expectations Survey. Uh, This exam explores student attitudes and beliefs about university physics and how those attitudes and beliefs change as a result of physics instruction. One of the disturbing findings from this survey was that instruction produced an average deterioration rather than an improvement of student expectations. What did you make of this? And where do you, where'd you go from there?
1: I I actually, I, I don't know that I quite expected this result, but this this whole thing grew out of my uh, readings. While at Lillian's, um, Lynn Jossam had gotten me onto the issue of epistemologies. And there had been some very fine studies in the 60s about epistemologies of college Physics students, uh, college students, how those changed over the over college, and he was doing. Um, now I've forgotten the name; it's been so long. But he was doing, um, you know, political science and history and and literature, and you know how the students would come in with an idea. There were right answers to everything, and then they would start breaking it down. And they say, no, it's all random. Nobody has any knowledge of anything. You can say anything you please. And finally, they would get to what I call a constructivist stage where they were saying, well, you can't be sure of an answer, but given all the information I have, this is what I believe now. But he had a a footnote. He said, of course, this is not true of science. Mm. And I looked at that, and I said, if the professional on this field thinks that's not true of science, which is totally wrong. Because it's exactly true (laughs) that there's an opening here. And so immediately I got out from Lillian's, I wrote a proposal to build the MPEX. Because I looked, I said, I want, and I read David Hammer's thesis, which showed me that how true this was of students. And so I said, what we need is some test like the force concept inventory, that we can give that shows epistemology matters and is not what we want it to be. And from reading Hammer and DeSessa, uh, I said what we want is, I really like this uh, dynamic responses idea, what, what David has been calling the resources framework, and that means that we're not looking at students' opinions of science We're looking at what students are thinking about the nature of the knowledge they're learning that affects what they're doing in class. How does that affect what they're doing in class? And that was the breakthrough idea. And it was better than I expected because it was immensely robust. You kept losing. And... Then there were, which was, you know, what what you saw on the in the Force Concept Inventory, is students did terribly, and you did all this teaching, and they only did a little bit better. I wanted some result which is dramatic as that. I didn't expect losses, but it was, you know. And then people started to come up with Andy Elby, in particular, as a high school teacher, demonstrating he could get gains. In a small class with a class oriented towards epistemology. And that then kind of started to break it open that there were possibilities and ways to do this. And so it became an important result, and I'm really pleased with it.
0: I'm curious what, what you might think that the where the real value lies there. Is it with is it with what we're learning from these from these tests? Or is it because we've given them to say thousands of students, and we know what the results are? Is it really about keeping continuing to open the eyes of physics instructors to how things we're doing are not as effective as we think they are?
1: Exactly right. This this is uh, um, what I call the 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 problem that we encountered. This, of course, is ex post facto, is that the the students have the wrong idea, have a misconception, if you will, the wrong idea of what it is they're supposed to be learning in class and what they have to do to learn it. And I call this a a problematic epistemological frame that that, that when you come to a situation, you say, okay, what's going on here? And what do I have to do in this situation? That's framing. That comes from anthropology and sociolinguistics and other fields that I've stolen from. But, but the, the idea is that there is in a class an epistemological framing. And when the students framing and the faculty framings are different, you wind up with problems that neither understands what's going on. And the faculty will look at the students and say, they don't know math. What's going on here? You know, they've had a calculus course and they can't do simple arithmetic. That's not what's going on. What's going on is they're not seeing the equation in the same way that you are as a faculty member and that to learn to see it that way is a process that you have to help them through. So what we're doing is, is elaborating the nature of the problems by having some theoretical understanding of how people come to situations and react and finding appropriate ways of of analyzing them, thinking about them, describing them so we can now create structures and scaffolds to be more effective.
0: I want to pull... uh... A few lines from the conclusion of your 2007 paper with Mel Sabella, uh, Knowledge Activation and Organization in Physics Problem Solving. Instructors and curriculum developers can use the idea that students often form isolated sets of knowledge during instruction. At the simplest level, the associational character of the resource model highlights the importance of helping students develop implicit links to related topics in the physics course. In addition, instructional materials, as well as exams, should be designed to help students develop the necessary connections between various physics concepts, as well as connections between qualitative and quantitative knowledge. I feel like this is really important. You and co-author Mel spend 13 pages outlining a resources-based activation model of learning and show us that non-experts have separated knowledge structures, that they cannot link ideas together the way we do. And in my mind, this isn't their fault. It's what defines a novice. Uh, This is huge because for years I've heard teachers be continually surprised that our students, after seeing just one or two examples, can't piece together two separate ideas in a complex question when we have never even given them a chance to practice it. How often have I heard that that test was much harder than the homework? I've heard that uh, in response to my tests, and countless colleagues have said the same. Um, When I was reading this, this really felt like a, a light bulb moment for me. What what do we do? What what do we instructors do to bring together these separate knowledge clusters?
1: This is why I've retired now, so that I can begin to write up the tools that I've been developing for the past ten years, that come out of those ideas. Right. What I've really realized is through through many years of this is that. Doing science, doing math in science is not the same as doing math. That there's an extra step, a blend of bringing together the physics concept and the math structure that changes the way we interpret equations, changes the way we look at equations. It gives it a power and a flexibility that the students don't imagine or see when they see it in a math class. They learn all these tools in a math class, and then they say, why am I bothering to do this? And so they don't really take it in and integrate it because they don't see the value. But when you have the math power integrated with the physics, there's all kinds of things you can do, all kinds of things you can understand. And we've had Dozens of examples of students looking at some math and saying, oh, that's why that works. And, you know, the more often we can get that to happen, the more valuable it is. So the the thing I'm working on now is a series of which I'm hoping they will be papers in physics teacher Mm -hmm. called using math in science. Maybe it's using math in physics. I'm not sure which title I'm going to use. But it's um, I've I've kind of broken it up into teaching strategies, and a, a lot of people, Gary White, for example, has talked about teaching strategies. But most of them there are for physics majors, for you know for engineers and for biologists and for premeds. They also need these strategies of learning how to think about the fact that the math is not about numbers; it's about physical quantities. Why is the equation 1 inch equals 2.54 centimeters a legitimate equation, whereas 3 seconds equals 3 meters is not, right? The students don't see that, and we, you know, we don't teach it. <laughs> There's, and there are, there are all kinds of little rules and tricks that we use in physics uh, because we make the blend. I mean, the, the example I love, if you look at the equation E equals F over Q, it's the definition of the electric field. If you ask a student, does the electric field depend on a test charge? That's on a flashcard. They remember, no, it doesn't. The other side of my flashcard says no. But if you say E equals F over Q, Q is the test charge. If I, de- if I replace Q by 3Q, what happens to the E field? They'll say, oh, it goes down by a factor of 3 because in math, F is a fixed thing. If I'm talking about Q, I change Q. But if you're a physicist, when you change Q, you change the force on Q, and F is not an arbitrary symbol, it's the force on Q. Mm-hmm. So when you change Q, that changes too. But, but we don't teach the students to think about it in that way and so they get very confused. And so what are the, what are the different tools? What are the strategies? Now I've identified, I don't know, 10. And I'm trying to write a, p- a short paper on each.
0: We await with bated breath those papers. Although I know it takes a while to, uh, <laughs> for, the, for those to appear. Um, they, will uh,
1: all, they will all be available on the Living Physics Portal. Uh-huh. Their first five are already available now.
0: Oh, the okay. Physics Portal. Oh, and I'm,
1: as I add papers, I will put them up on the Living Physics Portal.
0: Everybody, go there now. Uh, it, my, <laughs> my show notes will include links to, okay. to many, many papers to, to the websites we talk about. Um,
1: yeah.
0: One, what, what, one piece I, I want to go to, and th- this was a little bit more general. In, in 2011, you contributed to an American public media audio documentary called Don't Lecture Me. Uh, And uh, I'll I'll include it in the show notes for our listeners to check out. Um, But I I wanted to pull pull out a a few lines. Uh, One of them is, if all there is is lectures, we don't need need faculty to do it. Get them to do it once, put it on the web, fire the faculty. Uh, (laughs) And then later in the episode, you go on to say, most professors are not going to change their approach. The reason that they don't change is because there is a strong pressure on them not to do that. Until the perception of the quality of a department begins to depend on how innovative and creative it is in teaching, it's going to be hard to make that change. Have times started to change, or are those who adopt insights from PER still a small percentage of the faculty?
1: Well, I don't. I don't have any data. I think the change is happening, in part because there are pressures. Uh, I, I am, uh, I am giving a a talk uh, next month at a um, large public university where the dean is very upset because they have an engineering school and they teach physics for the engineering school and the students take the first semester of physics and the second semester the enrollment drops by 50% Now, the engineering students have to take that course. They take it at the nearby community college.
0: Mm, Yes.
1: And so uh, there are pressures. There are pressures that are beginning to happen. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm now on the tail end. I've been around a long time and I've kind of trying to stop paying attention (laughs) to everybody else. So I can't really say what. You know how often this is happening but I think just you know as an observer and I I did participate in last semester's teaching so I know what it feels like that uh, there is going to be perceived a big difference between people who just do online stuff I mean this is really you know the the record the lectures and put them online is happening because it's the easiest way to do it. But I actually have a um a freshman in college right now, a granddaughter, who is telling me, "Yeah, I have one of the classes like that. It's awful. I really hate it. I really want the class where there's, you know, alternate interactions and where the Zoom is interactive and where you know, you know, just doing the online class, I'm not nearly as successful." And a lot of students are saying that. So all of a sudden, with the pandemic, there is pressure for innovation, pressure for engagement. And you know, I had I had seen the possibilities a few years ago, but I didn't think it was going to happen this fast. You know, I had I had said to some groups, Oh, I would like to experiment with you know remote. Um, online where you can put people in groups. Can you do that? Can you put people in groups and have them have discussions and then I can bring it back in? They said, we think we could do that. Well, now, of course, it's happening everywhere, right? And so there's a whole new set of topics for physics education research. <laughs> uh, and if I were 40 years younger and starting again, I probably would do that because that's both the combination of the computer technology and the cognitive and the social that are three different threads in physics education research that need to be woven together here to really help us figure out the best way to do this. This is this is the future, I think.
0: Do you know that folks, there's some research ideas. <laughs> now for a topic that I'm I'm really excited about. Um Physics for Life Science majors. Uh, When Originally, when I think of UMD and Joe Reddish, I immediately think of Nexus Physics, where Nexus is the National Experiment in Undergraduate Science Education. Uh, I think of Physics 131 and the 132 courses that are provided on the UMD website to anyone who wants to access these resources. I think of all the readings and homework problems, clicker questions, recitation questions I've accessed countless times. I think of the labs that were completely redesigned in an innovative fashion with the huge efforts of Kim Moore, who I also hope to interview uh, along the way. Uh, The Nexus Project started in 2010, but already in 2000, you had NSF funding for a project called Learning How to Learn Science, Physics for Bioscience Majors. What sparked your interest in making physics relevant for bioscience majors in a time when very few people were probably thinking about these majors at all?
1: That's a very good question. My, my interest in <clears throat> the class goes goes pretty far back, actually. In 1974, I was a second-term assistant professor and given my first large class, and I was given algebra-based physics. And uh, the chairman sent me as a representative to a conference at MIT on teaching physics for the professions, run by Tony French and Len Jossa two people who were later dear friends. And I was charged with going to find out what we should teach for pre-meds. And so, you know, I had lots of discussions, talked to some doctors, came back, tried to put some examples in for the class, but there weren't a lot of Mm pre-meds. And I then moved up back to engineering and physics majors, which is what we were doing with the Muppet class. Then I was teaching engineers. We were teaching quantum to engineers. Then we hired David Hammer. We had a retirement, and I looked. I said, who argues with me the best at all the AAPT meetings? (laughs) Uh, And, of course, David had been the inspiration for my work in the MPEX uh, in reading his thesis from Berkeley. I managed to talk him into leaping to Maryland. And he started teaching us some brilliant stuff. He brought an epistemological slant and a course called How to Learn Physics, which he had developed at Tufts, where he took 12 students and they started with the real world and they did experiments and they put things together and they, they built physics. And I thought it was brilliant. And after hearing him talk, I said, okay, David, how are we going to do this? Upscale this to a class of 200. He said, you're crazy. You can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) So I took a sabbatical at Berkeley. My sabbaticals have been very productive Mm -hmm. in, in changing my lifestyles. And... I also wrote my little book, Teaching Physics with the Physics Suite, because I was working on that other project. And I had this idea that everybody had been doing um, all kinds of active engagement tools for large lectures. And I said, let's epistemologize each of those tools.
0: Is that a real word? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) You can verbize anything.
0: Okay, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I sometimes say the word velocitize, and I realize that's probably a bad idea. It's like I should get them realizing acceleration, not, not, not a made-up <laughs> word. <laughs> you can velocitize that or accelerate it. Yes, yes.
1: Just remember Humpty Dumpty in Alice in Wonderland. Look up glory. Humpty Dumpty and glory. That's a reference for you. So I made a proposal to do this actually was quite interesting because we put in a preliminary proposal and they said, no, we don't want to fund, we wouldn't fund anything like this because it's really a curriculum development project. I said, no, it's a basic research project because we don't know how to do this. And so we're going to do a lot of qualitative research. We're going to take videos. We convinced them. We wound up with a, a million dollar project and that project Led learning how to learn science led to about five later um, NSF grants. We then got a grant to develop tutorials, a curriculum develop project. We then got a grant to develop professional development for teaching assistants and to do research on that. And, you know, so there was a whole chain of stuff, a whole 10 years of work that came out of that. So it was absolutely fabulous we learned so much about student thinking about a, about the nature of science so that when in 2010 the uh, Howard Hughes Foundation Howard Hughes Medical Foundation Medical Institute HHMI a foundation for supporting educational development in for premeds said they, had a, they wanted an idea for a project for some off-the-wall random thing. And I said, we're ready for this. I want to do it. We we wrote a proposal to make a course, a physics course, explicitly for biologists and pre-meds. That's a whole long, interesting story, too, but with lots of anecdotes. But I'm not going to tell those because we don't want to run for a week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... HHMI, I, I hate to, you know, say anything negative about them because they absolutely changed my life and it was wonderful. It gave me ten fantastic years of work on that project, but they had a rather narrow vision of what they wanted to do. They wanted to demonstrate; it was an experiment. So they had four classes: uh, uh, physics, uh, chemistry, a math for biologists and a capstone course and they wanted us to make a few modules to show how to do it I said we really need to do this from the ground up and it needs to have research and so I went out to NSF and got a a project to redo the thermodynamics in a coherent way mm. biology, mm. chemistry and physics because they're done differently in each of the different areas so we got another We doubled our amount of money, and now I could put together a big team, and I got the most amazing group of young people, what I call my gang of five. Two graduate students, Ben Dreyfus and Ben Geller, and three absolutely super postdocs, Chandra Turpin, Vashti Sotel, and Julia Guvea, and they were amazing and we brought it we had faculty who were engaged it was one of the best experiences of my research life and i've had some good ones i mean muppet was great we worked together lots of good people but this was off the charts it was such a pleasure working with these people and they learned so much and they produced so much and then they went off <laughs> and got faculty positions elsewhere <laughs> And basically, Nexus Physics is left to me now. (laughs) Every 10 years, I do something different. If I get another 10 years, it will be really making Nexus Physics permanent and available and documented. That's what I'm hoping to do. And that documentation is going to include a lot of writing for teachers about what we've learned.
0: There's so, many, there's so many threads that, that come together, and it, and it sounds like that was true in your, in your research as well, that uh, there was the you know, creating courses that were relevant for the life science majors, but at the same time, you were learning so much from those students about where they found it challenging to learn because they didn't come in with right. the idea that right. they wanted to learn physics. There's there, there's a motivational piece, and there's maybe just the different way that they they think about physics. There's not kind of this natural math mindedness. Right.
1: But 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 it's interesting because um, this is this is it's really this is real research, and it's the way research works. A lot of what I've built into Nexus Physics, we gained out of basic research with upper division physics majors learning methods of mathematical physics. And this was Tom Bing's thesis. And what we did was we looked at how the epistemological tools the students brought into the class were being used. And we identified a lot of epistemological framing and epistemic games. And we learned a tremendous amount about how epistemology plays out in an actual classroom and then that theoretical development we applied to the biologists in the new class and what provided us really useful tools for understanding what was going on
0: how did you learn some of the new physics um, i think about you know one of the one of the barriers to teaching intro physics for life sciences is we're physicists we don't know biology um, I didn't even like biology. Then I married a biologist. Then I started gaining more of an appreciation, uh, and then I started having students who who really weren't super interested in physics, but I saw that they did have interest in, in medicine, and I thought, well, what if I what if I speak to them at that level? And then I realized, wow, there's so much I have to learn, and for my own sake, I was really excited about it. I, I was loving what I was learning, uh, but but maybe not everybody has. Time to go and dig in and learn almost a brand new field. So you didn't have a, a Joe Reddish or a Catherine Crouch or a Don Meredith to learn from.
1: I had I had a Todd Cook to learn from. So I did have someone. This this uh, is, is an, this story I'll only tell you a little of because if you want to hear the whole thing, we wrote a paper called "Learning Each Other's Ropes" about the uh, epistemology of interdisciplinarity in. Um, uh, Cell Biology Education, Life Sciences Education, which is an open online journal. It's a really fun paper. Um, <clears throat> but what happened was I, I joined a group of, of senior faculty on campus who uh, wanted us from all departments who wanted to just sit around once a month talking about teaching. And I thought this would be a good thing. I really care about teaching. And I like talking to people in other departments that I don't get Mm -hmm. to do because physics is so big at Maryland. And so we uh, were sitting down introducing ourselves and uh, one gentleman across the table from me was a senior physicist who said he was a physicist working uh, working with the schools, teaching. And the next one was Todd. And he said, you physicists, you're supposed to be helping us. By teaching a physics course that our students take, but you don't help them at all. You teach all the wrong stuff. And it came around to me, and I said, uh, I'm Joe Reddish, and for the past f- four, four years, I've been working on a project to try to figure out how to teach physics better for biologists, and here are the biologists I'm talking about It here. <laughs> and afterwards, he came up, and he apologized, and he said, oh, he's such a nice guy. I mean, he never, you know, you wouldn't imagine him to He's can be fierce, but came up and said, oh, you know, this, I'm sorry. I didn't know anybody like you existed who actually is willing to talk to biologists. I said, let's have lunch. And we proceeded to meet for a year regularly. And we just had a ball. And he would say, why don't you teach the HP equation? That's crucial. I say, teach it? I don't even know what it is. Oh, <laughs> I've yes. never yes. heard of the <laughs> HP equation. What are you talking <laughs> about? <laughs> and so you know he would make demands and i would say oh that that's just you know that's ohms law in the pipe he, he would say oh <sighs> you know i would say i teach that as an example of how to think about resistance mm-hmm. in uh, electric circuits he said but it's important in itself and you teach bernoulli which is all wrong and uh, anyway so i you know so we've had we still in, interact once a week to talk about fluids and all those things you know, I just I have worked with um, biophysicists like Wolfgang Losert, and uh, uh, he he wanted to teach the class, and mm-hmm. so we did a team teaching for a year, and that was wonderful because we he would sit down and say, "Oh, this is great. We're doing diffusion. We can use some of the stuff from my research," and he would toss something out, and I would say, "Wait, explain it to me." Mm-hmm. So he would explain it to me and i would say oh that's too hard but if we only pull out this piece then we could do it and so you know we went through and we wound up with a whole series of um chemical signaling problems from his research and so you know there's there's not that much biology you need to know and the biology you need to know you should know right i mean you ought to know every It's kind of high school biology today. And if you're a senior physicist today and you don't know what every high school student knows about biology, you haven't been keeping up. And you ought to. It's just like every biologist should know something about cosmology. Right? Uh, You need to know about DNA. You need to know uh, a little bit about, you know, RNA, the structure of the cell. There's... There's very little you actually need. And what I tell my students when we have these biology problems, especially the longer ones, like for recitation, the TAs are panicked. I don't know the biology here. What is a kinesin, right? What is an actin thread? I mean, uh, I, I say, no, no, don't worry that in this situation, what you need to do is tell the students you have not had the prerequisites for this class. It's their job to provide the biology. And so you have to call on them. And if there are biology questions, you say, that's a good question. Did you talk it in your group? Talk to your group. Let's bring it to the whole class. Let's see what everybody else has to say. But you make the class co constructors of knowledge, technical term, that they're not just taking from you. Mm-hmm. I always tell my class on the first day, this class has prerequisite of chem one and two semesters of biology. I have not had those prerequisites. You know much more chemistry and biology than I do. (laughs) And therefore, you have to tell me what you have learned in that class that is relevant in these contexts. And I continually call on them to do that. And of course, I've learned so much from my students and my colleagues and I now know when they've got it wrong.
0: <laughs> I, I've had so many amazing experiences myself of, you know, the first time bringing this concept uh, or that concept into a class and a student is so excited to raise their hand and say, we just learned about this in my anatomy and physiology class. And this is how we learned about it. And, and they're not looking at you and saying, I can't believe you got that wrong, but they're so excited that they can share what they know and add to the conversation and, and then I learned something and then I run off to my, my anatomy and physiology colleagues and say, Terrific. they told me this. Can you tell me more? Terrific. And it's, it's such a great back and forth and, and that helps me to learn and the students love it. Uh, it's such a great experience.
1: And and what you're doing is you're opening a channel for interdisciplinary conversation. That, that what we have now is in STEM education, there's all kinds. Most of the work we do is service courses. We teach each other's students, right? Chemists teach the biologists. We teach the the, the chemists. Uh, we teach the engineers. The mathematicians teach everybody, and we never talk to each other. We'll teach a course in engineering, and we'll spend a whole long unit on statics and rigid bodies and we never know that when the, they get to their engineering class in statics and dynamics they use a different language and notation we really need to open this channel of communication and the the big the big innovation that really that i think made a huge difference for nexus physics is Previously, physicists who were redesigning their biology class, their course for biologists would often take the textbook index, uh, table of contents, and give it to biologists and say, which do you want us to do? What we did was we spent a year, first of all, we found a group of 20 people in all these different disciplines, and we sat down for two hours every Friday and talked about what we could do for each other, and how we could articulate the course. And the big thing that came out of that is we found that we in physics, because of the way we do things, we could do things for them that they did not know we could do. Like we could help the students disentangle what they're hearing about chemical bonds and binding energy, which conflict in biology and chemistry. We can use physics to resolve it. We can help them understand diffusion. We can help them understand entropy and even free energy. And so there's a lot we we say, oh, this is trivial. This isn't important. But it is important if we understand who the students are. It's not important for a physics major who's going to be a... Uh, uh, a cosmologist or a particle physic- physicist to worry about fluid flow in highly resistive media. right? But if you're a biologist, it's critical. you need to know that. Mm-hmm. And so you know understanding your audience and and uh, thinking about what it is that is a value in physics. and our, our, our method of taking toy models, finding the simplest example, So you can fully understand something and then seeing how to embed that into a more realistic approach is immensely powerful and profitable for these students in their home disciplines, whether they're biologists or engineers. And we ought to be explicit about teaching that and showing that this is of value.
0: I I was I was actually listening to a little bit of that. Uh, Don't lecture me podcast, I don't even know if it was called a podcast back then, but, but listen to that episode uh, the other day. And uh, I was, it was, you know, hearing the example of of Eric Mazur using peer instruction in his classroom. And it just happened that the, uh, that, that the clip they were playing, they were talking about capacitors in class. And, you know, my mind once again goes to, it's like, why do we, why do we teach traditional capacitors to, to the intro students who are interested in, in life sciences? It's, it's like, it's not just about the capacitor itself. It's about how, how do we actually apply this to something interesting? And then I remember, oh, right. We can, we can think about action potentials and, and how the, the firing of, of uh, the action potential, we can model uh, with, with this mm-hmm. uh, RC circuit basically. And, and remembering that it's like these making these connections, that's what can be really important.
1: And what's most important of that is showing the students that making connections is of value. That's teaching an epistemological resource mm-hmm. that we often fail to do.
0: So there's so many ideas we've talked about, so many ideas we haven't been able to talk about. Let's, let's say one of our listeners today is, is on the fence about reforming a course for their life science students. What advice can you offer them to, to motivate, to try something new and to give them a place to begin?
1: Well, I guess the first thing I would say is, what are you trying to achieve? What do you want your students to get out of this class? Right? Do you, is it just a checkoff? You want to, or or a weed out? Do you want to make it so hard for them that they can't do it uh, and therefore have to drop out of pre med? Do you want them to learn something? If, you know, these people are going to be your doctors. Right. I have already I you know at, at my age, I have all kinds of medical issues and I'm seeing doctors all over the place. I run into former students. And, you know, so these are these are the people you're trying to teach who are do you want them to look at you as a series of memorized instructions. Oh, I have this result. Therefore, I'm going to give them this. Or do you want them to take a holistic look at you and say, well, what's the context? How does this fit in? What are the mechanisms? What are the issues that happen? You want them to think scientifically. Do your job to help them help you when you need them. I actually tell my students this on the first day. I say, look, This course is hard because I'm going to make you think, and I'm going to teach you to think about science in complex situations, and this is because someday, maybe 10 years from now, somebody's going to roll me into an emergency room, and one of you is going to be the doctor in there, and I want you to know what you're doing, and to think as a scientist, not as a technician.
0: If I could grant you another fifty years in higher education, what what questions would you want to address next? So say, say we give you those te- we give you those ten years to to write up the nexus stuff. Now you're done with that. You got another forty years left. What are some other? What's another question? And some other questions you still have? Yeah,
1: the question that I really have that I would love to explore, and and I, let me, I, you know, I I can never. Uh, give you a straight answer. I have to give you a background for framing. But I've done a lot of reading in uh, associated brain literature uh, like neuroscience and linguistics and uh, uh, cognitive linguistics and sociolinguistics for example, and semantics uh, in order for example to understand how do I think about making meaning with math. But now one of the things I've been seeing from teaching interdisciplinary populations is there's culture, there's a cultural difference between physicists and biologists. And I've started reading about how, I mean, this is about the framing, right? You come into a situation and you know stuff and you say, okay, this is what's happening and this is what I'm gonna do. But those frames are organized and learned from some kind of, and form some kind of culture. There's some pattern. How do we think about that? How can we analyze the cultures that people bring with them, the cultures that are created in a classroom? How does the social interact, the external social interact with the internal cognitive? That's what I'd love to look at. I've done some reading, um, uh, a book by Michael Agar has has really excited me, um, called uh, Language Shock, in which his key idea is that language is about communication. And that when you're communicating, you're communicating in contexts, and your interpretation of the context is brought from your whole experience. And this is your culture. So language is all about culture. Well, that's true about mathematics and science. And so I bring my culture to my science and the different sciences bring their culture. How do I think about that? How do I organize my thinking about that? I've learned how to think about organizing epistemology and epistemological resources and epistemological knowledge. I also want to think about... Ontology, which is another issue, but we don't have time for that. <clears throat> but the big one is the culture. I'd love to think about that for ten years.
0: Well, you never know. If you, uh, <laughs> if all of these medical professionals you've helped train are are doing a, a fine job, they can they'll keep you kicking for uh, many a decade to come, right? <laughs> well.
1: What, I, what I'd much rather do is inspire some young people with forty years ahead of them to pick up the baton and keep working on the theoretical side of physics education research, as well as the observational, as well as the uh, curriculum development side.
0: All right, we'll try to uh, we'll try to get this recording out to as many people as possible and see if we can't. Get folks, folks as excited as, as you are to talk about education uh, this uh, this has really been a, a joy and treat for me to, to chat with you to hear how so many years behind you with all of this you still talk as if you are a kid in a candy shop of, of education research and you love these ideas and you're clearly so passionate about it and what what we're doing for for our students as educators uh, and I thank you for bringing that energy to to the world.
1: It has been such a privilege to be able to do so, to be able to spend my life at a university working with students, learning from them, and learning how to teach them.